Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website subchina.com. In addition to the very useful China news aggregation that we do, we have loads of original writing, videos, quizzes, and a whole lot more. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, is the noted post-structuralist theoretician and scholar whose sublime and groundbreaking work on post-textual discourses on subaltern modes of sexuality among matriarchal peoples of the Mosul nationality has earned him not unfavorable comparisons to Lacan and to Sontag, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, Dr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Uh, Jeremy, greet, greet the people. Don't use any of that usual obfuscatory academic jargon that you're so fond of. Wow. Oh, man. That was so bad. That was a real, that was like a academic dad joke. Um, <laughs> and academic you know what I'm going to tell the people is that you are most useless scheduler in the universe. So you allegedly had put all the dates for the upcoming podcasts into Google Calendar. At 2 a.m. this morning, I get woken up by my phone telling me to record a podcast. And I message you and I say, you must mean 2 p.m., right? And I don't hear back from you, so I thought it was 2 p.m. Central Time. And so... I'm on top of the hill, on top of my holler, having a nice hike, just having a little break from writing the newsletter, just sneaking off for a bit of exercise, and I get a call from you. So uh, if I sound a bit discombobulated, that is why. So hello, people. (laughs) Um, I haven't even had a shower. I I still smell of the woods. Well, I haven't smelled worse. No, there's nothing wrong with the way I scheduled it. It was correct. It must be some setting on your end. But anyway, we'll, we'll hash this out later. We're delighted to be joined today by Ben Schobert. Long, long time listeners of the show uh, may remember Ben from way back. I think it was April of 2013 uh, when he joined us for a conversation on healthcare in China. Uh, well, Ben is here in Durham, where he spent a little bit of time some years ago on either end of an MBA program, a global MBA program he did out of Duke. Uh, he's visiting our very dear mutual friend, Damian DeNoble, with whom I share an office space. Uh, the timing couldn't be better because Ben has written a book that I very much recommend and that I think is immensely important. Uh, I hope especially that it's going to be read by our American listeners because it speaks some fundamental truths about this country and its notions about China. Uh, The book is called Blaming China. It might feel good, but it won't fix America's economy. Uh, Ben sold healthcare 
consultancy Rubicon Strategy Group last year, and he is now senior manager at Microsoft Next, to the health division, uh, and he leads strategy engagements with national governments there. Ben Schobert, welcome back to Seneca. Well, thank you for having me, Kaiser and Jeremy. It's good to be back. Ben, great to talk to you again. Can you first, by way of self-introduction, tell us a bit about the work that you're doing right now and how connected it is with China? Has your focus shifted now away from China? So um, as is always the case when I get asked that kind of question, I have to say that it's uh, partially touching on China, but that the comments in my book and on this podcast are definitely mine and mine alone. That's a necessary pre-statement usually. But um, a lot of the work that we're doing in Healthcare Next is very focused on the uh, use cases specific to artificial intelligence in healthcare and life sciences. And so as you might imagine, there's quite a bit of that technology stack that's reliant on very specific pieces of things like machine vision, uh, which come out of uh, some of our laboratories in China, uh, Beijing specifically. Most of the um, use cases right now that we're focused on find themselves deployed in the American and European healthcare economies, but uh, that's just for the time being. So, so far, it's only the American and European radiologists that you're putting out of work? Uh, thus far. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're accelerating their efficiencies. Ah, uh-uh. <laughs> that's, that's nice euphemistic language there. Yes. Before we dive into the discussion of the book, I understand that you were in D.C. recently to give testimony on the tariffs uh, to the U.S.-China Working Group, uh, of the Congressional U.S.-China Working Group. Rick Larson's group, right? Yep. Is yeah, he, is he your Hicks. congressman? Uh, no, he's the district directly south of me. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. all right. Uh, anyway, I, I think it was actually on the day, in fact, that Trump announced the $200 billion tariff package, which was last week as of recording time. Uh, can you give us a sense of what you said and what you were asked? Yeah, I mean, the the... I guess the preamble of my comments was to remind those on the Hill that for all of the current tensions and dysfunction, um, I I argue that the United States actually got quite a bit right in the context of the U.S.-China relationship. And while there are certainly problems, um, there are asymmetries on things like market access, uh, in particular those faced by a lot of our big technology firms. We actually have done quite a bit right. Uh, we've had some of our best and brightest, uh, our, I would argue, if you look at our statecraft um, over the last 40 years, uh, we've done a very good job managing the, China, the U.S.-China relationship. Hmm. Um, but there are hard conversations that we have to have. Some of those are specific to the U.S.-China relationship. Some of those uh, have to do with changes that we need to make in the U.S. political economy to allow us to approach China from a greater position of strength than one that today is manifesting a lot of insecurities and anxieties. Very well said. Ben, that sounds to me like the impetus for writing this book. Is that what you said to the U.S.-China Working Group? And am I correct in assuming that that is also part of the reason you wrote the book? It, it is. I mean, my, my underlying hypothesis is that, and, and what led me to ultimately write this book is a conviction that if anyone upends the modern era of globalization, Uh, something that I would argue is built on the back of uh, some really painful lessons we learned in World War I and World War II, the country that's most likely to do that could very well be the United States. And it could be a byproduct of a series of uh, profound systemic insecurities that we are bringing into the modern U.S.-China relationship, some of which are admittedly proxies, uh, but some of which have most to do with a lack of decision and an embracement of what I view as free market fundamentalism uh, in the context of how the United States approached globalization. 
Ben, to continue that question, the state of the bilateral relations is obviously giving the book uh, its urgency at this political moment. For sure. But at its heart, this is actually more a book about the state of American politics than really a book about China, per se, you know? Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. But I, I would argue that when we think about uh, the China that exists today, it's in many ways a, a byproduct of a momentous period of global history that culminated in the end of the Cold War. Um, America is the progenitor of that moment. And so this particular version of China is a version of China that, while not the perfect manifestation of what we wanted, uh, it in many ways, if not most ways, expresses their willingness to adopt themselves to our particular approach to globalization. And yet somehow China, in your telling, is something under which Americans really, on both sides of the aisle now, have been projecting their own anxieties uh, their own frustrations uh, and all sorts of negative emotions. Uh, that's fair reading, yeah? Uh, yeah. So why why China? I mean, I, maybe it's obvious to a lot of people, but there are other countries with whom the United States runs significant trade deficits, other places. I mean, you know, uh, what was his name? The third party candidate in... Uh, Perot. Oh, yeah. I mean, H. Ross Perot wasn't talking about China when he was talking about a giant sucking sound, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, I argue that there's actually, there's there's this really specific collection of anxieties and insecurities that Americans are walking around with right now, which can only be projected onto China. There's this awareness that the economy no longer works uh, for the American middle class. And there's a perception, even though it's it's really at the, let's call it the common culture level, there's this perception that China is working better for their middle class. We're walking around with that insecurity. We're walking around with this just everyday awareness that our political system is fundamentally broken and dysfunctional. And again, whether or not this is right or wrong, for those of us who you know, are close watchers of the Chinese political system, we see it for a lot of its flaws. But there is, again, in common culture in the United States, this perception that the Chinese uh, political system gets up every morning for all kinds of reasons, thinking about what it needs to do to get things right for the Chinese middle class. And that same kind of fixation on the needs of the, let's call it the middle class, doesn't exist in the U.S. political economy. And it does in China, or at least that's the perception. And then you layer on top of that this awareness that China is some sort of rising power. And it is expressing those aspirations regionally in ways that capture the popular imagination. It has an aircraft carrier now. It has a stealth fighter. And all of these things begin to get perverted and projected onto a version of China that I would argue has a lot more to say about American insecurities. Because at this same period of time, the economy is not working for us. The political system isn't working for us. And we feel like we can no longer uh, get our way at the global level like we used to. I mean, the Obama administration and Obama himself used to say, and I think he said it with some real conviction, that a strong and stable China is good for the United States. I I don't hear these words coming out of Washington today, and I I don't think, you know, we will anytime soon. So is China wrong then to have essentially concluded that this policy that the United States has now turned to, at least, you know, in this administration, is really all about thwarting China's rise? I mean, they seem to have arrived at that conclusion. Uh, I mean, let's be fair. I mean, this inherent zero-sum worldview that, that the Trump administration says exactly that, right? Their gains are our loss. 
So this is one of the questions that came up last week on the Hill, and it was asked by someone who said, you know, more or less, what do you think the Trump administration's strategy is? And 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 the the subtext of that was, I don't think that they actually have a strategy. Right. My my argument is that they they actually very much do have a strategy, and they they really do view China as a near peer competitor. They view it as a near peer economic competitor, as a political competitor, in the sense that it's positioning a political value system <clears throat> that's fundamentally at odds with the American approach to government, and that it is actually a military near-peer competitor that the U.S. needs to do more than plan for, that it actually needs to begin positioning military assets in anticipation of a crisis. And we see in Steve Bannon's actual words him saying that he thinks that there is going to be a war in the South China Sea between the United States and China in the next 10 years. And it's not just Bannon anymore. I mean, it's the entire Pentagon. I mean, there's basically three major documents that now uh, have converged around this idea. You know, there's the national security uh, and the national defense uh, strategy. I guess they're called strategies. And there's the uh, nuclear review. And all three of these now identify China as an actual primary threat. That's right. right. That's right. And so, you know, I in the book, I talk about how um, you know, the movie that some of us may re- remember from when we were teenagers, Red Dawn. Um, Wolverines. <laughs> Wolverines, yeah. <laughs> sure. How it got remade, uh, but this time with China as the threat. Until they decided to make it South. That's oh, North right. Korea, and right. then they had to step in because they were worried about losing their funding and markets. <laughs> That's a real metaphor for our time. <laughs> so right. they, they became North Korean, right? That's yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ben, so in in your telling, China is a sort of receptacle into which Americans have poured a bunch of their grievances. But this isn't anything entirely new, at least with economic anxieties. We've seen many presidential candidates campaign on China bashing and the loss of jobs to offshoring. But something was different in 2016, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I in the book I talk about how for me it was significant to see a candidate, and this is going back one election cycle, uh, which feels like a generation ago, uh, unfortunately. But going back to the the cycle that had Mitt Romney running, and it was significant to me to see Mitt Romney, uh, private uh, equity, <laughs> uh, significantly successful through all sorts of, let's call it uh, extraction of economic value through globalization. Um, someone who knows what globalization has done for him <laughs> very, on a very That's personal level. a very polite level, way to. Right? Right? I mean, of, of, all the, of all the possible Republican candidates that were surfaced in that particular cycle, Mitt Romney had a lot of experience extracting economic value from globalization. And to see him in, you know, the Rust Belt states uh, talking quite vociferously about China as a near-peer threat, as the source of economic anxieties, you know, that to me was a signal. Um, and it's one of the things that provoked me to sit down and, and write this book. And, and I think we all, to your question, Jeremy, we all recognize that there's historically in this modern era, there's been two tracks, right? There's been the track that candidates run on and the rhetoric that they use in the context of, of a run up to an election, right? And I think the Chinese even know, you know, they're in Akron, Ohio. They're going to have to say something, you know, kind of nasty about China. But then there was, you know, formal 
signaling, you know, informal track two diplomacy relationships that existed, which signaled to the Chinese that, hey, this is not going to be expressed in actual policy. And, and so there were these, you know, two tracks that were more or less running in parallel. We understood on both sides why this was happening. And then we get the 2016 election. And then all of a sudden, the optics have significantly changed. And it turns out there's this cohort of really economically anxious, culturally insecure people in the American Midwest, where I grew up, um, in parts of the South, that are actually at a point in time where they need someone to focus their anxieties towards. And I argue that Donald Trump um, saw China as the perfect embodiment of that. And I think anyone who you know dispassionately looks at this administration, you know, recognizes that this is a you know this shouldn't have been news to us. We should have seen this coming. And and one of the really f- you know fundamental points in my book is that this moment in the U.S.-China relationship is actually a byproduct of the U.S. embracing free market fundamentalisms for too long during a period of time where there was, there was a significant structural change in our economy. Oh, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a very fair accusation and something that those of us who were sort of the reflexive champions of kind of ne- neoliberalism who you know, instinctively cheered on as the private sector yep. in China expanded. I mean, and yeah, of course, we have a lot to answer for. Uh, I ben, suspect- can, uh, so, sorry, Kaiser, can I, I just ask of a course. question? Be- ben, could I ask you to put a date on that Mitt Romney appearance in the Rust Belt? Yeah, so the Mitt Romney conversation, or excuse me, the Mitt Romney comment was in the run-up to the 2012 presidential election. Okay, great. Okay, thanks. Hey, so Ben, I suspect you'd share my belief that there's something deeper than just economic anxiety, something that really cuts to the heart of the American idea of, of our place in the world. Uh, recently, we spoke with Chaz W. Freeman Jr., and this subject came up, and we talked about how there have been these two axiomatic pillars, really, of our exceptionalism. Uh, I think it's fair to call them that. One is the, the linkage in our minds between uh, you know, democracy and a successful market-driven economy, and the idea that you know you can't really have one without the other. And the other is this linkage between intellectual freedom and technological or, or scientific innovation. Uh, I think the fact of China uh, and its challenge to both of these beliefs is part of what really gets under our skin. Uh, another part is just the kind of generic feeling, you know, that you said, you know, a near peer competitor, but we've not had one before, right? I mean, it's, I suspect maybe all incumbent powers feel this when they sense that, you know, they may be overtaken in some way. I mean, is, is that is that how you see it? I mean, I think that's a theme in your book as well, yeah? Yeah, there's this idea in my book that, um, you know, coming out of the, the Enlightenment, really, there was this political conviction that you couldn't have free markets without free people. And so that once you seeded a society with what we would think of today as a, as a free market, there would inevitably be um, downstream impacts to freedom to express oneself, freedom of religion. And, and so there was this idea that you used the market as this beachhead um, onto which you would be able to then ultimately see a country make a move towards a liberal democracy. And I think one of the you know, really provocative uh, questions that's being asked right now, and I would argue it's not being asked in the right way by the right people, but is this this question about, okay, China has 
cowboy capitalism, <laughs> right? Now, it's, sure, yeah. it's admittedly, a, it's a very Chinese version, but it is very much a market. And it's not the kind of communism that my father or my grandfather saw, uh, thought of. And, and because of that, it shouldn't it be liberating people. Right. I mean, it's the development theory. Yeah, it's, it's a just, development theory, right? right. And, so, and so the fact that that's not actually happening, while that to people who are you know, very deep into into China and understand it from a historical and a political and an economic point of view, uh, might view that as a ridiculous argument. The reality is that that was part of how the U.S.-China relationship, how this modern era of globalization was sold to the business community, was sold in parts of the American Midwest that might not otherwise know how to think about approaching China. And, you know, this has been used to beat the people who have been proponents of engagement and who still are. I mean, but I think there's, uh, to, to push back a little bit on what you said, that's it's something of a straw man. I mean, maybe that's how it was interpreted out in the business community, but I don't think anyone ever said those words. I don't think anyone ever, any serious person said, you know, expected that this was going to happen overnight. I think we understood that it was, I think a lot of us subscribed to that, that basic idea that it was a beachhead, but I don't think anybody believed that, that it would overtake the body politic of China overnight in the case in the case of China I mean in one biological generation I think that if you want to look at progress toward that there's plenty of evidence for it I think there's you know could you you know until this retrenchment that started you know 10 years ago could you have really looked at China in 2008 and said there hadn't been meaningful progress Towards sort of a more deliberative, a more participatory, a more you know sort of uh, rule of law driven, uh, a more humane, a sort of kinder, gentler form of authoritarianism. At least, I mean, it wasn't part, full democracy, of course, but I don't know, there was progress. I, so I, 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 I really it bothers me this straw man that I see now being erected constantly, where we you know supposedly thought that. Uh, Engaging with China and spreading the gospel of capitalism would somehow transform China overnight. We never said that. It, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation. I've heard you and Jeremy go go back and forth in this on uh, past podcasts. Um, and so let me let me approach this. Let me put my kind of you know businessman's hat on and and let me uh, set aside you know my interests in the U.S. China relationship that that have led me to be um, much more grounded in some of the foreign policy components of this this relationship. I, that was a very real part of the narrative in the business community, this idea that if you could get China to have a market-based economy, it would inevitably result in free people. And so this one of the things I talk about in my book is this really unsettling realization that's taking place in parts of uh, the U.S. Um, geographically, like literally in parts of the American Midwest that matter to where the this relationship goes, where there's a realization that you know China's not going to look like we thought they were going to look like, and I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Mm. And as cynical as we can be about that, as much as we can, you know, say that that was never uh, that was never really a well thought through idea, or it was something that was only going to express itself over multiple generations and only under a scenario where the United States and China did a lot of things right. That was a key part of the narrative. Okay, I yeah, I think maybe yeah, I, <clears throat> I, I think also Ben, you know, there there has been an almost palpable disappointment amongst the business community that China hasn't opened up further, even, you know, if you're not talking politically, just in terms of markets over the last, you know, five, 10 years that, um, 
is a similar narrative. You know, even business people that weren't expecting political liberalization were hoping that it might get easier to do certain things. And some things did not get easier to do. Some things got more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the stakeholders that really matters to the, you know, especially the next um, 24 months uh, as this U.S.-China relationship continues to evolve uh, is the business community, and in particular the multinational community. And if if we continue to see um, the sort of signaling that we saw in this week's Wall Street Journal article um, about some of the issues that multinationals have faced in China. It's about DuPont. About DuPont, about, right, yeah. It's how it had its intellectual property basically strong-armed out of its hands, right? right. Um, you know, those kind of stories are signaling devices from the multinational community that, you know, say, hey, we are not encountering uh, the sort of market access we thought we were going to have. And if the multinational community in particular sours on the opportunity that they see in China, that's going to add additional fuel to the fire. And I think it will actually um, make it even harder for the Trump administration to approach this uh, this this whole trade war differently. Ben. Anyone who follows American conversations about China right now can see that there's uh, really a, a bipartisan consensus, perhaps the only thing that mm. the Democrats and the Republicans agree on right now is this kind of get tough on China approach. And, you know, implicitly, there's a, a blame China component for uh, America's woes, you know, a big theme of your book. Um I think the idea of a GOP demagogue whipping up populist nationalism and anti-China sentiment is very easy to understand. It's unfair trade and offshoring of jobs. And I mean, Marco Rubio uh, maybe is a typical example. He'll go on about anything at all that's negative to China, whether it's right. human rights. But a lot of the, um, the appeal to his base, I suspect, is connected with national security or unfair Absolutely. trade. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, right. But what about the Democrats who've turned more hawkish on China? I actually feel as though, you know, having been an immigrant in America, mostly under the Trump administration, I have Sorry. a better sense of what the Republicans <laughs> uh, think. I, I don't understand what the Democrats have turned more hawkish on China. What are they responding to? Is it the same stuff, trade? Or is there still an actual human rights uh, concern or uh, something else? So, so I think the reason that you're seeing some Democrats get more comfortable taking a hawkish position on China is a reaction to the, the new Democrats' uh, willingness in the 90s to embrace China. And in doing so, um, in, the, in the 90s, in particular in the Clinton administration, um, they alienated a lot of the traditional constituencies of democratic politics, uh, chief among those um, organized labor. And so the New Democrats, really from the you know the mid '90s till very recently, um, have been in this kind of awkward position where they've needed to be you know close enough to globalization and to view it as something that is a net good that results in lower cost goods, you know, and have been willing to take that argument up and actually defend it in front of their voters. Now, with um, Donald Trump as president and having proven that you can actually 
actually make political gains by showing China is taking something away from the American economy. Um, it's actually, I think, a comfortable reversal for many Democrats, especially those that historically have had uh, significant reliance on the AFL-CIO and organized labor. Um, it's, it's a moment where for many of them, they're going back to some familiar ground. And they're doing so at a time when you know the rhetoric is, is very, very loaded. And so I think that's why you're seeing some Democrats go back to a point of view um, that actually in many ways is probably more indicative of their historical position from the 70s to the early 90s. I think that's part of it. But I mean, sure, I, maybe a lot of our listeners who aren't really steeped in American politics don't remember uh, that it was really only with the, the the rise of what you're calling the New Democrats, you know, the um, Clintonians who really sort of turned our party, or my party, toward toward free trade. And that wasn't the case before. Dick Gephardt, if you'll remember, you know, ran right. against yeah. Clinton back then on on a platform still very much, you know, opposed mm-hmm. to, to China. But I think there's that human rights component too, yeah? Uh, I mean, of for course. Sure. I mean, and I think... Um, you know that that's a legitimate and it's a hard conversation. Yeah, and absolutely, it's, and it's one that um, you know we have to have, and I think it's one that many many Democratic politicians feel um, gives them another thing to talk about in the in the context of China that resonates with their voters. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are just sort of zeroing in on the one issue. Which I don't think there can be too much. Uh, I mean, who who would be willing or even able to defend right now what Beijing is doing in in Xinjiang? I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ben, in your book, you divide the world of China watchers into these two camps. And, you know, we, we all know the dragon slayers and the panda huggers. Uh, while reading this book, I was a bit unsure, though, looking at its central premise. I mean, as I you know looked at the sort of design of the book, uh, whether the idea was that you were going to take the side of the panda huggers or whether you were just sort of setting up kind of equivalency between the two camps in which they were both kind of guilty. Uh, I I guess after reading it, I I have to conclude that, you know, that wasn't the idea, that there was no real equivalency, that, you know, you do fault the panda huggers for a few things, but you basically come down on their side. Is is that a fair characterization? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, my what I argue is that the panda huggers and that that political camp more or less, um, I believe, has have gotten most things right in the U.S.-China relationship and deserve credit for having done so. What I think they missed is a couple things. One, um, not having a serious conversation about the dislocation of American workers and industry and not fighting for some sort of social stabilizer that was going to take into account the effect of globalization, Uh, something that I think we've seen amplify with technology and financial engineering over this same period. So Hmm. right now we're talking about globalization, but it's actually the pain that's being felt by a lot of Americans isn't just about the U.S.-China relationship. It's about a lot of other things that that's come right. to place. And financial engineering is a huge piece of that. That's right. That's right. And so I, I think what, you know, on balance, I think panda huggers got much more right about the U.S.-China relationship than they get credit for. Um, I, I think that dragon slayers, if if their point of view on the world in general and on, the, on, on China specifically is to be taken seriously – there's some really hard questions, and there's some accountability that goes with that. Mm. But do they get something right, the dragon slayers? I, I, I think um, dragon slayers in general want to wrestle with the question of what it is we should see from China in terms of structural change before we 
further embrace them, either economically or politically. The most extreme version of that um, is extraordinarily dysfunctional. But there's a version of the Dragon Slayer's world where they, they set up some sort of gating system by which they say to China, we're going to go up to this point in the relationship, and then we want to see you make some significant structural changes. Absent that, uh, you know, we're going to continue to wait. And so I don't think it's wrong to take a trust but verify approach to the U.S.-China relationship, especially given the stakes involved. But as a group, the Dragon Slayers haven't really laid out a clear agenda for China that China could follow, really. No, and I and you know one of the to me really pregnant questions uh, that Dragon Slayers have to answer is okay, you know let's let's rewind the tape. And, and let's actually go back to all the way back to Nixon's visit uh, to China. Okay, so would what would you actually do differently? Um, and when I listen to a lot of Dragon Slayers characterize what they think uh, should have been done differently, I'm left with this open question as to what you know would that have meant China was just like North Korea? You know, would we would we but be much think, bigger? I think much much bigger, much more four hundred times bigger. That's right. And think of all of this. You know, these just the stresses that we all as Americans walk around with thinking about North Korea. I mean, you you say North Korea to people, and they're you know you can see their bodies kind of you know <laughs> shrink in because it's this very real fear um, uh, about that country. And so, okay. If we were going to approach China differently and it didn't, in fact, lead to China, you know, actually entering the global order as it did, would we actually have a version of North Korea, just to Kaiser's point, 400 times bigger? That's one. Xi Jinping as rocket man. (laughs) Yes. That's not a that's not an encouraging thought. It's not yeah, just rockets. No, that's a, that is a, a a good corrective. Thinking of that alternative history is is a good corrective to worrying so much about engaging with China because that certainly would be a, a, a very possible uh, nightmare. Yeah, uh, if absolutely. things had been done differently. Ben, um, you quote quite a number of dragon slayers, but not many panda huggers by name. Who are some of the better-known commentators who you would like to include in that camp? Personally, I don't know many people who would embrace that label. Like Kaiser, I think... uh, Me? um, um, (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. So you took one of my answers away. Where are you going with this? (laughs) Like, uh, I mean, Kaiser, you know, a lot of people call him a panda hugger. But I doubt he thinks of himself that way. I certainly uh, do not. Yeah. So, so I think, I mean, let me answer your, your first question, and then I think there's a, a really interesting substantive question behind that, which is, um, so, so the, first, the first part, um, when I think of, you know, panda huggers, I, I think of people like Jim Fallows at The Atlantic, hmm. uh, someone who has written, I think, very persuasively on a number of topics focused on common misunderstandings in American culture about the uh, U.S.-China relationship and about China's rise. And, and Jim's article in particular about uh, how China man- manages its currency is probably a great example of someone, you know, very tactically explaining to the American people a very commonly misunderstood issue. And so I think, you know, Jim is probably one of the more higher profile 
panda huggers. Well, he's one, then I'm one, but I, right. I don't think Jim would embrace the label. Well, and so that's the interesting question, right, is I wouldn't either. And yet I think most people, when they finish my book, they'll say, well, Ben is a panda hugger. And I would actually say, well, hold on. Maybe in spirit, you know, I understand why you would say that. But that doesn't mean blindly or blithely avoiding some really hard conversations about China. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to human rights abuses. It doesn't mean looking at the market access issues, which persist for many of our companies, and turning a blind eye to that. But it does mean that on balance... Um, I argue we've gotten much more right than we've gotten wrong, and China has changed in so many healthy and positive ways, and instead of focusing on what's going wrong, we need to figure out what's gone right and how we build on that. Hmm. Ben, don't you think there's a risk of using the label panda hugger as we are in actually describing something that isn't a panda hugger, but just adopting a cool approach to U.S.-China relations? And aren't you giving ammunition to the other side that you don't really agree with by using this label? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, it's not originally a label of my choosing, and perhaps I should have invented a new one, but it was a common one that I had certainly heard in, in many forums in D.C., um, in, in China. And so I felt you know, not only comfortable using it, but that it was a necessary way of capturing a point of view that was, you know, fairly commonly understood. So um, fair enough. You you'd mentioned one of the the challenges that you would put to Dragon Slayers, uh, because you know they advocate this position, they need to to give the sort of you know the counterfactual case. What would have happened if we hadn't pursued a policy of engagement? Uh, there were other two others that I thought were really interesting that you sort of put to them as well. One of them was that they argue for disengagement. They even argue for sort of, you know, a war footing. So they need to spell out what those eventualities would actually mean to the U.S., to China, and, and indeed to the world. Uh, so that's interesting. I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. And then there was another that you had which I, I thought was was also an excellent challenge, which is, okay, so you're saying that China's gains have been because it has flouted the rules uh, so show us where those gains have actually been from flouting the rules and not just from the part of its behavior that was, you know, well within those rules parameters. Yeah. So this the first part of your question is, you know, let, let's actually for a moment take very seriously uh, President Trump, uh, Peter Navarro, Steve Bannon. And let's actually for for a couple of minutes give ourselves or requ- require of ourselves to take that worldview seriously. You know, where does that actually take the United States? Where does that take China? Um, I am at a moment when I observe both countries where I feel that it's a mistake not to take these people at their word. Uh, And I worry that right now many of us are guilty of a real tragic failure of imagination. We are all in this moment where we're hoping that this particular worldview is a boil that needs to be lanced. It's this moment of, you know, anxiety, which is provoked by change. But on the other side of this moment of, you know, very frustrating uh, step backwards, that on the other side of this, there's actually good things to come. And, And I more or less believe that. But if we take these people at their word and we actually look at where their worldview goes, um, it's pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they're, they, they, they haven't really thought it through. I feel like they, they're, they're talking about, you know, the things that have such 
a monumental scale of human suffering involved, and they're talking about them sort of casually. Yeah, it's 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 almost it's almost as if this is a board game, right? Right, and it's not actual people making hard decisions in the context of you know different political systems, different cultures, different histories, and and again, in the subtext for me in all of this is the United States during this modern global era. Um, has not been tending to its own knitting. That's a phrase from my Midwestern roots. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, and again, this is one of those conversations where if you get, you know, six people of both political uh, persuasions in a room, you know, you'll get more or less six people that agree we need to invest more in infrastructure and we need to invest in healthcare and social spending. And yet at, this, at the end of the day, you know, we didn't do that. And so we're talking about China from this point of view of just extraordinary insecurity Again, how much of that is because of what China has done? How much of that is because of things we haven't? Uh, one that, that comes up again and again with conversations with economists like Steve Roach or Andy Rothman has been our, our absurdly low savings rate. When you have such a low or even a negative savings rate, borrowing is inevitable and trade deficits are therefore absolutely inevitable. Right. It's right. the only way you sustain it's that. It's the only way you can That's do that. Right. Right, right, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, fascinating. Ben, you hold that dragon slayers and panda huggers don't just part ways on the issue of China, but that their attitudes towards China are expressions of quite disparate worldviews. I think that's uh, an, an intriguing idea. And, you know, Kaiser and I have often discussed uh, this kind of idea, not just about U.S.-China, but about domestic U.S. politics. Um, I certainly have my own ideas about what those different worldviews are and what the underlying philosophical assumptions are. But can we hear your take on on this? And let's start with the dragon slayers. What are their core assumptions? I think one of the really critical core assumptions that they make is the only way you can provoke the type of change that they believe China has to go through is through provoking a crisis. And so from their point of view, a conciliatory approach to managing the U.S.-China relationship is bound to fail because unless and until some really bad things happen, the Chinese system will continue on the path that it's on. And that's a path they view as being economically and politically disadvantageous to American interests. And so right out of the gate, um, you have the Dragon Slayer worldview more or less actually acknowledging and seeking to optimize for uh, a crisis in China. And I think, again, any of us who take setting aside China's history entirely, any of us who take that really seriously, that you're actually saying that it's only in the context of a crisis that countries change, have to be willing to have that same standard held uh, in our own country. And so that, you know, that provokes a really hard question about, okay, if that's what you think China has to go through to really change, is that what you believe the United States has to go through to make some of the changes that you believe in? Why do you believe that that follows necessarily? Couldn't they just say, well, these are two different political systems. One of them is self-correcting and open-ended and has a democratic politics, you know, that allows for transition within an institutional framework. The other doesn't. Because at the core, the belief is that a human being's only capacity to change is provoked by a moment of very real existential or temporal crisis. Catharsis. There's a catharsis that has to come. And absent that, you will never get significant, meaningful structural change. So these these dragon slayers are actually Freudians. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's of a piece with Stephen Bannon saying that, you know, Trump is a blunt instrument, um, a shock to the system to, you know, deconstruct administrative state. It's also using crisis to force change. That's right. In that view. That's right. And then I think the, you know, the, the subtext you know, be, you know, behind that is this idea of, okay, what actually leads to optimal outcomes? Is it a policy of inclusion or a policy of exclusion? So if you, you know, make, let's, let's set you know, China aside, let's talk about Cuba or North Korea or Iran. Um, very real conversations that put these two competing worldviews um, back into the center stage. You know, if we actually bring these these countries into the global order in some way, if we make some effort to actually include them in the conversations we're having and the policies that we are setting, again, usually led that the pointy end of the spear is usually economic. <laughs> um, does a policy of inclusion provoke the kind of changes we want or is it excluding these countries that will ultimately get the kind of regime change that you hear a lot of people in D.C. talk about very casually? I would rattle off a few other sort of core assumptions of the Dragon Slayers. I mean, American exceptionalism, a basic you know nationalist worldview rather than an internationalist worldview, one that sees you know uh, American uh, interests simply as enjoying total primacy. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's I yeah. think that's right. Uh, well, but what about the panda huggers? I mean, you hint at some of the fundamental tenets in their worldview when you talk, you know, for example, about uh, their position on 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 China. Right? Uh, they take history much more into account. They they take the narrative of the century of humiliation uh, where, you know, okay, so on this, for example, me, I, I, I don't think that the Chinese uh, subjective interpretation of the narrative, you know, this hundred years of humiliation is factually correct in all its particulars. Right. But I understand it as an emotional narrative and I understand that it very much shapes the Chinese worldview. And so I as I mean, as now we've decided, I'm a panda hunter. So <laughs> I, I I accept that. No, though that is very much. I mean, I am all about right, whenever we can. Let's introduce as the more panda context. hugger in chief. Well, <laughs> no, but I mean, like in chief. The, the, the century, no, empathy. You know, yeah, right. empathy. I mean, th- this absolutely. is your, what you call cognitive empathy. Kind absolutely of, right, right, absolutely. Uh, but also, you know, um, you know, it's a cultural relativism versus uh, relativism versus an absolutism. Again, it's like you know, cosmopolitanism or internationalism. Rather than narrow nationalist or nativist worldviews. That's um, right. That sounds about right to you. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I think that, you know, panda huggers argue for, um, which and this, is, this is a tricky argument, but is that, you know, there is something peculiar about where China is coming from. Let's, and let's set aside, you know, the century of humiliation. But there's actually something very peculiar about the size of China in, again, let's go back to 1980. There's something very peculiar about the size of the country and the uh, degree of modernization that was required, which leads to you having to approach China different. You just have to make some adjustments. Ready for to size. cut it slack for things that <laughs> yeah. it has, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you could say that differently just to say that there's lines and levels of development for countries and for civilizations and until you contextualize where a country is coming from. And again, I'm, I'm setting aside the century of humiliation. Until you actually look at things like demographics and you look at urban density, there there are actual policy How considerations. How is this even in dispute, though? I don't know. <laughs> well, again, 
again, I, 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 I think because the idea that, you know, for progressives, context matters. And for more conservative people, there are first principles that you organize things like this relationship around. Ben, there are, however, areas where China's interests and America's interests simply aren't compatible, or or maybe I could even say China's interests and the interests of anyone who has liberal enlightenment values. You know, I'm thinking, of course, right now of, of Xinjiang, where there appears to be a massive human rights crime being perpetrated. Yeah. Before our eyes, just about, or at least, yeah. you know, before our flickering screens. So what are the ways, I mean, if you are a panda hug, or at least if you're not a dragon slayer, if you are broadly in favor of engagement like I am, but you can't on a daily basis, you know, forget the news uh, coming out of China, how do you move the needle without just subscribing to a Bannon-esque worldview? It's a it's a great question. Um, you know, in the book I talk about, um, I in in my limited way made a very intentional effort to try and understand what I characterize as the dark side of China, and I it's it's through an organization uh, was put in contact with a Christian pastor who was under house arrest, and uh, his our you know our communications were smuggled in and out, and I I still have them these you know almost tissue paper thin. Um, scribes of him just, you know, talking about his situation in China. And that was a very intentional uh, decision on my part because I, I wanted to actually understand uh, the side of China that I knew existed but that I would never see. And, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of Americans and some of those who I'd characterize as, you know, the particularly naive panda huggers um, never get beyond the Potemkin village. Um, in China, and they never actually make an effort to understand the complexities of the country, the culture, and its history. So my gut is that the answer to your question, Jeremy, is that you know the wound that strikes the deepest is the wound that comes from a friend. And so again, betraying my own panda hugger uh, proclivities, I actually think it matters deeply to the Chinese to have someone that they have trust in that they know is actually making an effort to understand them, uh, is actually making an effort to try and build systems of accountability, multilateral relationships that don't have purely controlling China in mind, to have someone of that disposition to actually stand up and in private and in public say very clearly, this is wrong. This is unacceptable. What that leads to is a very honest acknowledgement that that is a somewhat tepid answer to a humanitarian crisis. But my my assertion is that when we think and Americans have this as a particular problem, we believe we can make other countries bend to our will. And if, if we've learned nothing in the post 9-11 era, it's that we grossly overestimate our power. And so my, my conviction is that, you know, there are aspects of any other country that as odious as they may be, we only have a chance of changing if we try and approach them uh, through what I characterize as a policy of inclusion uh, and one of what I think could historically be thought of as real politique. I am in 100% agreement with that. Um, enter Kevin Rudd, the Tony. <laughs> But that's a hard, you know, that's a hard one, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the hard one, yes. right? Yeah, I mean, I, I fancy one day I may be in a position, you know, I, as somebody who I think is not distrusted necessarily, 
you know, to, to say something. And sometimes I do get an opportunity to, to, to talk to people who may be in a position to. People anyway. who matter. Right, right, right. Anyway, uh, Ben, you wrote this book before the current trade war really kicked off in earnest. And, you know, you were in many ways very prescient about how things were going to play out. Um, I, I fear you were, you know, kind of too prescient. But uh, ha- has anything surprised you, though, in the time since you sent off your manuscript? I mean, is there anything that gives you cause for even deeper concern? Or perhaps, you know, you've glimpsed a, a glimmer of, of hope or cause for optimism? <laughs> I would love to tell you that I'm optimistic right now. I think the the book has been uh, fairly fairly prescient in its characterization of mm-hmm. the the U.S. Mm-hmm. political system and how it would pervert a lot of anxieties onto the U.S. China relationship. The the one thing that I I wish I would have put more uh, there's two things I wish I would have put more time and attention into. One is um, I've long held the belief that if the multinational community sours towards China because of persisting market access issues, um, that would be one of the last dominoes to fall. Yeah, it's like one of the last pillars. That's right. Last things That's right. holding up the wall, right? That's right. right. And so that I, I, I wish I would have I would have put a, a little bit more attention to that. And then the, the second thing I wish I would have um, talked about more openly is. My my conviction is that we are talking about China because it's easy and because it fits on bumper stickers and on um, trucker caps. Mm. The, the, we really have to be talking about something much more provocative, which is the role of government and and actually really talking about globalization, financial engineering, and um, technology. And technology. Change, yeah. That's right. And those those are, I think, the real triggers of this moment of anxiety. Excellent. Ben Schobert, what a pleasure to have you on the show again, and so glad that you were you know, able to hang out with us here in the Triangle for well, a couple of days. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, thanks for lunch, man. Let's, let's <laughs> do that again. Do it again soon, yeah. Once again, the book is called Blaming China. It might feel good, but it won't fix America's economy, and you can pick it up on Amazon and other bookstores. Uh, before we wrap up here, let's make some recommendations as we do each week. But first, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you want to show your support for the work that we do here at SubChina and at Cynica, sign up for our premium access service, and you'll be rewarded with all sorts of bonus goodies like discounts or free admission to our events, uh, early commercial free releases of Cynica, and more. Uh, the other thing you can do to show your support is, of course, to leave us a positive review on the iTunes store. It helps other people to discover the show. So thanks for that in advance. Please go do that. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I have, I don't know if I ever told you the story the first time I went to a dentist in America and um, I had a tooth pulled out, you know, after 20 years of uh, China. Beijing dentistry. <laughs> you were a mess. Uh, yeah. Some work to be done. And... Um, me too, so me too. He, he pulled the tooth out and um, then he gave me a painkiller prescription and I went to the pharmacy and I got 30 oxycodone. Yeah, you told me that. And That's sh- crazy. Yeah, I, it shocked me because, I mean, you know, it, the tooth is sore for like a day or two. You know, in South Africa, they would have barely given you anesthetic for the operation and then they would have given you an aspirin. All of which is a short um, way, a long way of introducing the book that I'm uh, nearly finished that's really interesting called Dope Sick. Uh, yeah. Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company that Addicted America by Beth Macy. And it's all about Oxy and it's fascinating and it's very grim reading. And this is one of the problems this country faces that seems to me, you know, entirely domestically made. Well, the Sacklers 
Right. It's the the Sacklers. Is are they the, the main antagonist in this book? There's them, but you know, there's all their enablers. Uh, okay. All the doctors who are writing prescriptions, but yeah, I mean, these days even that lawmakers, gets doctors who write right. prescriptions. You know, it, it's a it's a very complex problem, and there there, there are many enablers. Uh, ben, what do you have for us? Yeah, I'm going to recommend another book um, which touches on some of the same themes, but it's Brian Alexander's uh, Glass House, mm. uh, The One Percent Economy and the Shattering of an All-American Town. talks about Lancaster, Ohio, which Forbes um, actually used to describe as the ideal, the perfection of the American economy and community. Oh, wow. And went through a series of uh, transitions very much consistent with what we've been talking about today, globalization, financial engineering, and has resulted in a community that's just racked with economic dysfunction. Opioid crisis is particularly acute. Suicide rates are very high. And um, it's a really uh, provocative, way of looking at a very specific community in the Midwest and asking, okay, what really went wrong? Um, and what's the what's the, 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 the group that we should actually be blaming? And what are the policies that we should be changing if we want to get this turned around? And, and the skinny is, it's the financial engineers. It's, it's the, the financial bankers. engineering, yeah. yeah it's yeah. the private equity groups that come in and take over the balance sheet of a functional company and extract all the value and in doing so leave these communities with very little. Yeah, that, I'm gonna, that, that goes on my list. I, I will definitely read that book. That sounds fantastically interesting. Uh, I recently recommended Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt at Yale. Uh, I mentioned that he had a new book called Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age uh, that covers the really the late 18th. Um, it starts with uh, Lord McCartney's uh, visit, his, his would-be embassy to uh, the Qianlong Emperor. I think it's 1793, and it covers you know the first four decades of the 19th century. Man, oh man, it, I am not disappointed. It's just fantastic. I could read nothing but this kind of history uh, for the rest of my life and be very ha- happy. I mean, it's 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 fantastically detailed. It draws on all sorts of source material that I, I didn't even know existed, uh, and it's it's just oh so well told. I mean, never for a moment does it get remotely dry. Uh, and I did this one on audiobook. And that I think actually made it even better. Uh, the narrator, this guy, I guess Mark Deakins, Mark Deakins, uh, he he didn't make a complete hash of the Chinese names. I think that Platt probably provided him with a pretty good read of all the Chinese words that, you know, that I understand from friends of mine who've written books that have you know on, on China. That's that's what they do. And the guy did a pretty heroic job of trying to get the pronunciations right. Uh, I am just completely enraptured. I'm maybe two thirds of the way through it right now. It's a great book. Highly recommended. So that's it. Uh, ben, thank you once again for, for taking the time and congrats on the book. I really, I mean, I cannot recommend it more highly, whether you're a dragon slayer or a panda hugger. Uh, do out, go out and read it. Makes, thank you, Kaiser. Makes you think. Makes you think. Jeremy, man, great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Jeremy, nice to talk to you again. Likewise, Ben. Are you on mute? I'm glad neither of you actually put me in either category. That makes Jeremy? me feel good. So, yeah. Oh, Sorry, I had okay. mute on. Okay, right. Um, hey, Ben, Kaiser, thanks. That was a, a fun conversation. I'm glad neither of you actually put me in either category. I think that was uh, wise of you. Well, no, um, you don't fit in either category. I really, I, th- I thought about it. You don't, you don't. It's, it's, you know, you, you proclaimed yourself still a proponent of, of, of deepened engagement, so... That's enough to satisfy me. Even it's though huggery enough for you. <laughs> and you're enough of a hostile foreign force. I mean, you had a website blocked in China, so that, that makes you uh, not too panda-huggery either. So. 
All right, man. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks. Great conversation. Bye, Ben. Thanks. Hope to see you soon in the flesh. Absolutely. Okay. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. It is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, and it's edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and the New Voices Podcast. Uh, thanks, very special thanks this week to Jason McRonald, who has just joined our team working on the Seneca Podcast with me. Uh, More shows coming soon. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.